Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we're continuing our aspiring intellectuals coverage. This is a special coverage where we have longer and harder conversations on more foundational topics uh, with our guests uh, on a wide range of scientific and then philosophical issues. And today I'm very honored uh, to have Greg Lewis joining us. He is an economist and the senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. And he co-leads the ALICE project, which is uh, short for Automated Learning and Intelligence for Causation and Economics, uh, which is an effort to develop economic AI uh, in artificial intelligence. So he specializes in industrial organization, market design, uh, applied econometrics and machine learning. And he's trying to unify uh, the twin goals of making better sense of microeconomic data and using those insights to optimize firm decision making and improve uh, market performance. So, Professor Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is my friend uh, Harsh Babla, who, who is uh, a, a senior in the electrical engineering department at Princeton, who also does research uh, in quantum information and machine learning. So uh, he, he's again coming here to, to guide me through the, the technical and scientific aspect of those things, because I know nothing about science. So <laughs> well, happy to be here, Tiger. I'm very looking forward to this interview. <laughs> uh, well, well uh, Professor Lewis, maybe we can, we can, I said a lot of buzzwords probably at the beginning. I, I don't want to overwhelm anybody, but, but I guess... <laughs> Uh, the, the, uh, would you mind first starting off the interview by telling us a little bit more about who you are and what your general research interests are? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm, um, I'm an economist is probably the word I'd use first of all. I got a, I got a PhD in economics from Michigan um, back in the day. Um, and, uh, and before that, I did economics and statistics uh, in South Africa. And so the way that I look at the world is very much like an economist. I think a lot about efficiency, about trade-offs, about welfare, about how to improve market performance. Um, but I've spent a lot of time now at Microsoft. I've actually been there almost seven years now, which is surprising to me. It's been, it's been quite a while. And, uh, and you know, at Microsoft Research, I think a lot more about machine learning um, and about how we can automate some of the processes by which we either improve performance or we end up make sense of data. Um, and those are maybe the two big things. I mean, the world we live in today is a world where especially tech companies are sitting on mountains of data and they're very curious of how to understand their data better and to allow that to then allow them to inform how they offer better products um, or how they provide better solutions. So maybe also a word about the Microsoft research. I suppose it is not purely doing uh, market or business research, but it's also thinking a lot of the, the fundamental questions. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft Research is an amazing organization. Um, it's been around, mm, I think, since the 90s. And you know, I mean, long enough to give you the exact history. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and it's, it's really had this fundamental mission of making sure that Microsoft doesn't fall below, beyond, uh, behind the technological frontier, right? So at the time, Microsoft was one of the world's biggest companies. It still is. Um, and they were very concerned that the future would get there before they did. And so one of the, you know, one of the big stories about Microsoft research is, you know, that at some point, some Microsoft researchers said, hey, I think that, you know, um, having maps is going to be very important. We should really get into the game of maps. And people are like, no, and then Google Maps came along. Or, oh, I really think that sort of like these devices that are portable that we should use will be very important. And then they're like, no, and then the iPhone came along. So it kind of didn't quite work in the sense that it sounds like a lot of the ideas, of course, this is a story we tell inside Microsoft Research, you know, so it's a little bit self-serving, but a lot of these ideas were anticipated from the research side, but didn't get a lot of buy-in on the corporate side. But people have been thinking about these things for a long time. And it's really, um, 
it's already a, a place that's supposed to be in the style of Bell Labs, which obviously you know did create the future. We we know a lot about how well Bell, Bell Labs did, um, and so yeah, we're just trying to trying to be a little bit ahead of the game. That's our goal. That that sounds great. I guess maybe we can quickly pivot into some of the some of your specific papers or research just to get um, everybody a sense of what is going on because you. Uh, wrote this very interesting paper called You Can Lead a Horse to Water, uh, Spatial Learning and Path Dependence in Consumer Search, where you introduced a model of search by uh, imperfectly informed consumers with unit demand. And, and you found how consumers learn spatially uh, so, and, and all those very cool ideas. So maybe, uh, would you mind explaining some of your main findings in layman's uh, language? <laughs> Yeah, so let me let me say that you know this is really a paper that's trying to offer a formal economic model of something that people do all the time, which is that people want to buy a car, or decide on a daycare, or decide on a camera, and they're trying to make some choice. Um, and the unit demand thing is a technical thing that says that they just want to buy one of these things. They want to choose a daycare or go get a camera, as opposed to say news consumption, where you might be happy to read many many news articles, right? So. This is, a, this is a model of that search process. Um, and the big idea in this paper is to ask, um, how do I model a process in which I can start off and I already have some information about the world? So I'm not just going off at random. Um, a lot of the classic models in economics are essentially urn models um, in the sense of like a Greek urn, sort of antiquity, right? And, and there, if you ever took any of these statistics classes in undergrad, uh, I certainly did, you might think about like getting balls out of an urn and some of them are red and then some of them are blue and there's a question of how many of each you're gonna get and it's right. So it's that kind of model. Here in economics, there are classic models. People have won Nobel Prize, prizes for these models um, in which people are going around looking for a job say and they're drawing out wages from this urn. They're like, oh, that's $34,000 a year. Is that good enough? 36, is that good enough? And what they're trying to figure out is it's costly to engage in search. It's costly to sit around trying to find a job. It's costly being unemployed relative to having a job. Um, and so you're trying to figure out what point am I willing to settle? What's, what's the settling point? But in those kinds of models, really, you are drawing these objects out of an urn and they're not differentiated. Um, but when you think about most things we do in the modern world, of course, we start off with a lot of information. There are lots of paths that are differentiated that we can go down. It can be, you know, should I look for a job in management consulting? Should I look for a job in tech? Should I look for a camera that has that's digital? Or do I want something that has a fancy zoom? You know, there are all these options, and uh, and once you go down one path, um, of course, then your opinion about everything starts changing, right? So as you start going down one path, you think, oh, now I know more about the process. I know that in fact, uh, digital cameras seem to have got much better than I thought they used to be. Now I want to search more heavily for digital cameras than I thought I wanted to initially. And that's really the heart of this paper is trying to understand what happens in a process that has uh, learning as you go and therefore path dependence. And it turns out that's mathematically difficult, which is why people haven't written these papers very much before. Um, but, uh, but it's realistic, we think, very realistic. So um, you, you base this realistic model on like spatial learning, right? And, and you say that, you know, think objects really sort of close to each other. Um, if, if you learn more about something, you sort of update your beliefs and the objects really closer together uh, much more than you, you know. So if you're looking, you're looking at a camera, you'll probably, you know, update that closer to like a TV screen or, you know, something which is or like a, you know, high-end monitor or something which is, you know, very familiar to like photographers and stuff as opposed to like 
a boat or like a, mm -hmm. um, you know. So uh, could you explain that a little bit more and like why you sort of came up with that and like how that sort of works? Yeah. So this is yeah. This is this is sort of the key idea in the paper, right? So the, what's happening in this paper is I go out. I, I like to give the example of daycare because uh, I have to look for daycare for my kids recently. You're trying to choose a daycare. And you go out into the world and you have some beliefs about what you think might be good. And then you go and you try something. And so maybe you try, um, you know, the small private daycare that's a little bit away from you, right? And now it turns out when you actually go there, you have a pretty bad experience. You, you don't end up liking the teachers that much. Uh, you don't think it's actually a good fit for your kid. Now the question is, what do you do with that information? Of course, the easy thing to do is to say, I don't like that daycare. That's easy. The harder thing to do is to say, okay, but how do I feel about all the other daycares in light of that? And the idea of the spatial learning is to say, well, I'm going to find people that I think are similar and things that I think are similar to this daycare, I'm going to update on negatively. So I'm going to say private daycares, maybe a little bit less good than I thought they would be. That travel, I don't like the commute. So far away daycares, I don't, I'm not really so interested in them anymore. Um, and so this is a model where really the key idea is that people that are close to you in some space, and there's, you know, I mean this mathematically. So in the sense of like, points in Euclidean space um, are now going to, if you have a bad experience at one, we're going to think that all the other ones close to it are bad. But the ones that are very far away, I'm going to have very little, very little updating. Um, and so this is kind of realistic. And I'm going to back up to kind of like a high level concept for a second, because I think it's interesting. And we definitely thought about when we, were, when we were writing the paper is, you know, there are really two ways of learning at some sort of fundamental level. There's interpolation and extrapolation. So there's either you know, this thing is kind of close. My model, my brain has some mental model of the world and it says, oh, these two things are kind of close. I learned about the one thing. I really like skiing. Uh, I probably like snowboarding too, right? That sort of thing that's close. The other way to do it is to do it off like a, 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 an actual model of the world and extrapolate to say, I understand logically how these things are related. And so I know if, you know, so you have a physics model, I know that if this thing happens then this thing should also happen too. That second one is, is very logical and complicated, but the other one, the interpolation one, is what our brain does sort of subconsciously all the time. We're forever wandering around the world going, oh yeah, that thing's like that thing. I like this thing, therefore I like this other thing, or I don't like this thing, therefore I probably won't like this other thing. So Professor Lewis, just to clarify a little bit more, uh, are, are you examining this from a consumer's perspective or from a, a platform perspective? Do you look into their algorithm or uh, so when Expedia is filtering their search results or, or Airbnb or your daycare Google site, uh, are they kind of uh, implicitly or explicitly using some of those economic models to, to update the information they present you? Like how does the, the back of the scene work? Yeah. Lots of, lots of questions. Great. But the, yeah, so sorry, I'm so everything no, it's good. I mean, I just want to <laughs> break them apart. I think what you're doing is breaking apart the main actors here, which is great. Yeah. So one actor is the consumer. They're sitting around choosing a daycare. They're kind of the heart of this model. What we're really trying to do is figure out uh, what's a good description of how consumers behave. And then you can ask, okay, in this world where consumers are behaving this way, what are the platforms doing that they're searching on? Or what should they do? And what are, the, um, what are the firms doing that are selling these products, right? Um, we don't pay a lot of attention in this paper to the, the firms that are selling the products. Although, of course, you know, product design is an, an obvious element here, right? You might think, for example, that if people learn spatially and there's a product that's gonna, currently looking like everybody loves them, I don't know, like a Peloton maybe. It seems like people really like Pelotons right now. Right, like you know, it's probably not a bad idea to build something that's close to that product because you're going to benefit from the halo effect, right? 
people are gonna say, oh, I like this. I probably would like your product too. If you built it, it looks like Peloton that's way cheaper. Maybe you'll get some traffic, although of course you're gonna compete very aggressively with Peloton if you build something really close. So there's pros and cons. Um, but we don't worry about that at the moment. What we pay most attention to is the consumer and then the platform. And um, the platform, as you say, has this huge uh, ability to influence what you see, what information you consume, and therefore what you're gonna do. And so one of the punchlines of this paper is, um, this gives, in a world with path dependence, platforms have a, an, a, kind of a, a kind of power that maybe hadn't been paid a lot of attention to in the economics literature before this, which is that they can influence your beliefs by putting different products sort of right in front of you. So if a platform wants you to think badly of a particular kind of product, what they really want to do is show you a bad example of that kind of product. So they, they want you to believe that alternatives, I'll say something kind of alternatives to a Kindle, other e-readers are not great. What I really want to market to you is bad other e-readers so that when you read them, when you kind of delve into the research on them, you go, oh no, those are terribly reviewed. Everybody agrees that Kindles are better. And then you go and buy a Kindle instead, right? To, you know, so that's the sort of thing that I might, I might try to do. Now, whether platforms do this in practice is, of course, a completely different question. This is very much in the realm of they could do this. When they do this is a different thing. So this impact or this influence that platforms have on, on consumers' choice and like the way consumers think, think about products and stuff also sort of has some sort of ethics issues as well, right? Like Amazon competes with a lot of other businesses which sell products on their site. So, and, and can use this, you know, influence that they have for um, anti-competitive behaviors. Like, what do you think is like the limits to this? Um, Ooh, the limits uh, are really interesting. Uh, I think it's, a, I mean, so I feel like we don't actually have amazing answers to this yet, but it, there's huge interest in the economics literature on this because the antitrust issues. Um, and, and there are scholars who have definitely thought about this, but I think that, you know, the limits are, if Amazon gives you a very bad experience consistently with their search results, you might not use Amazon anymore. Right, that's, that's sort of where the limit lies. If I know that I'm looking for the hottest Christmas gift this year, whatever it is, I forget what it is in the classic movie, some sort of BB gun, I don't remember. Anyway, um, the, you know, that there's some sort of like thing and Amazon just doesn't return that to me because they don't want me to buy that thing. They want me to buy something else that has a higher margin for them. I might leave Amazon out. I'll say what, what's going on, right? So there's a limit in the consumers, especially consumers who are well-informed, know sort of what they want. They, they expect to be shown those results. But having said that, when consumers signal that they're not that certain about what they want, so for example, they enter a generic search term instead of a specific search term, then the platform has a lot of discretion. They kind of know from the fact that you haven't entered a specific search term that you're not entirely sure what you want. Now they get to choose what they want to show you. And of course, you know, depending on the deals that they've struck with the various merchants, uh, some of these things would be more or less profitable for them to show you. And so, you know, um, I think there's a tension here. It, and the tension really is the, the, the market disciplining force is if I don't like what I'm getting from Amazon, I'll go to Target or I'll go to Walmart and get those things, especially now that they're offering more competing services. But if I'm getting a pretty good deal from Amazon, in fact, if Amazon in general is a better place for me to shop than Walmart and Target, maybe given that constraint, Amazon on any particular one thing I'm trying to buy can steer me in the direction they want. So Professor Lewis, just to kind of piece all the big ideas that you talked about together. So I guess the big picture is that whenever a consumer goes on a, one of those aggregator platforms that has a lot of information, 
uh, they tend to do this thing called spatial learning, which is I, I want to keep scrolling through products that are closer to each other. I'm on the camera section. I keep going down a list of cameras. And then the, the platform also recommends me in that way. But, but what you found is really interesting is that uh, the platform can steer the consumers away from a certain space of products or something uh, by simply ranking a bad product that immediately turns people off. So they, they simply go away or, or, or when the consumer is ambiguous, the platform has a lot of power in terms of what shows you as a top ranking product, because that would kind of incentivize the consumer to purchase something. So that's kind of the, the, the big picture implications of, of spatial learning and platform power. Yeah, right? I mean, that, that ties together beautifully. The only thing I'd say as a caveat is it's not clear, as we say, that the platforms actually do this, right? So they could do this. But of course, if I show you a really bad product first, you might, that, you might take that as a signal that it's time to leave and go to Target. Right, so platforms have to be pretty careful how they use that power, right? They, they can do this, we think, um, but they need to be careful. And they also need to know how, there's a question of how much information you have as a consumer, right? If you're, if you're very uninformed, this might work. If you're very informed, you might go, why would you show me that? That's a terrible search result, right? And, and so that could, have, that could backfire. So uh, I want to go back to this idea of like uh, modeling um, spatial learning. So uh, a lot of times sampling or getting the price for something might be costly, right? You mentioned uh, uh, daycare centers. So like, you know, you can't, uh, you can't uh, figure out if a daycare center is good or bad unless sort of, you send your uh, child there, which can be quite costly. So, <laughs> so how, do you, how, how do you create that mapping of, um, of, of products in this you know, higher dimensional Euclidean space without sort of knowing what their cost is uh, sampling first? Yeah, so, the, so the, the formal model has two kinds of sets of, um, of attributes. So there are things that you know before you search that it, or that are just very easy to obtain. So in the case of daycares, maybe it's very easy to, for me to find about basic information about them from the website, say. And then there are things that are harder for me to know without, say, doing an actual visit. I mean, worst case scenario, there are things that would be hard to know without sending my kid there, but most of the time, that's not in the model because we're thinking about you make a choice and then you're done, right? But yeah, so there's, there's, you know, there's things that are easy to find out initially and then things that are already easy to find out when I make a, when I visit. Um, and so the question uh, here is, I'm going to go visit things. I don't want to visit every daycare center because that's going to take forever. We'll look at every camera on Amazon because it'll take forever. I'm trying to figure things out pretty quickly and efficiently. Uh, like in the classic models of wage search, I want a job. I don't want a job, you know, two years from now. So I have to make a choice at some point. And so what I do is I, um, I try to economize by visiting places and then seeing what performance I get, seeing what, I, what my opinion of them is afterwards. And then saying, okay, now I know a lot more about all the other daycares that are similar to this daycare. And so this leads to an interesting dynamic that happens in our model, which is an explore, explore, exploit trade-off, right? So the explore idea is, you know, if I'm gonna visit daycares, I might visit the private one that's far away, but then I might want to visit the public one that's just down the street. And those are two very different daycares. And so now I've learned a lot about two different parts of the attribute space, right? I know something about these daycares over here and these daycares over here. So now I know a lot more about all of them. Um, and so if I'm in a, you know, if Sam in a three-dimensional space, I might want to visit kind of pretty far apart places because I'm going to learn a lot around each of those points. Um, but at some point, I kind of know which ones I think are the best ones. And now I'm just trying to make a decision among all the, say, private faraway daycares, you know, I've decided that's what I'm going to go for. 
which is the right one. Now I want to zoom right in and uh, exploit. And so one of the things we show in our data, um, which replicates some data from, um, replicates an exercise done in a, a marketing paper by uh, people at Duke and Stanford, uh, Mark Ronenberg, Carl Meller, and a co-author of theirs, um, is that consumers definitely do this zooming in thing at the end of their search process. So at the end of the search process, they kind of know where they want to be, and they just look really, really closely in that area. Um, but what we're pointing out is that before you do that, you're going to want to explore, because you're going to want to know where to zoom in, in and you don't know where to zoom in initially. So it seems like this. Um, there, there's, there seems to be a lot of subjectivity associated with this mapping, right? Um, from you know actual products to this mathematical space, um, and. How, how do these results sort of translate to in real life with like the simulations you've done? Um, and how sort of do you take these real life data and sort of map your things a little bit better? Yeah, so, so the, you know, I come from a field um, of industrial organization and a lot of the work there is, is in this field called structural industrial organization, structural IO. Um, and the big idea in structural IO is that we write down models and we take them seriously. And because, that's sort of how, we, how we're gonna make sense of the world. So you have this world that's super messy, you're gonna filter it through this model and then you're gonna have something that's cleaner and easier to work with. And of course, you know, depending on the fidelity of your model to the world, that may be a good or a bad exercise, right? Um, and so we're gonna take this model very seriously. And then if this model is correct, um, all of the data that we see, how long consumers search, which ones they end up, products they end up choosing, but where they also start, which tells us something about what they thought was going to be good, as well as where they end up, which tells us something about where they eventually end up. The, the variance in that, how different people are and where they choose to start, how different people are and where they tend to end up, all of that is going to um, inform essentially the parameters of this model. So what we do is this model is, is characterized by a bunch of parameters, things like how consumers value these different characteristics that they can observe in advance. Things like um, how good the product ends up turning out to be in terms of a, a payoff or a utility in the language of economics, right? Um, and then the way that we connect the data that we have on these search trajectories to these parameters describing, say, the search cost is another one, right? Um, is through maximum likelihood. So we're using a particular statistical procedure, um, which has you know very good properties and has been studied for quite a while. Um, and so that's how the mapping works. Um, and what does this tell you about the world? Well. It allows you to run counterfactuals. It allows you to say, if the world was different in this particular way, um, what would happen? And so we do some of those. We do things like, what would happen if the platform decided to, how, how effective could the platform be at trying to get you to buy a particular product? Right, and, and, and we, can, we can do that manipulation. We can say, well, the platform could make you buy this, look at this thing first, and then it could drive you far away from the thing you wanted to buy. What would happen? Uh, Professor Lewis, uh, I'm going to wear my economics student hat right right now and ask you probably a little bit more about um, industrial organization, which is a field that I think is very distant from, especially undergrads, because I, I think in undergrad careers, whether it's undergrad econometrics or statistics, we learn a lot of techniques that are, you know, regressions, all kinds of regressions. So yeah. if you have a wages and you have years of education and you have other factors, how do you relate them together and, and kind of arrive at some kind of applied microeconomic insights? Whereas industrial organization, we're macro modeling, we're, we're looking at productivity. I mean, these questions, uh, they're not really taught in undergrad economic, uh, economics. 
and the, the math and modeling <laughs> sounds extremely complex. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the field and also uh, kind of what is, what is happening here. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, undergrad industrial organization is really focused on these important insights around, um, around you know, mergers and market power, how to think about entry and investment by firms, right? So these are all kind of very foundational theory concepts. But, um, but when you try to turn to data, it turns out that the, the, the theory models look like toy models. They're just too simple. They're designed to be that way. They're designed to allow you to understand things, you know, in a clean, clean way. But the world is really complicated. And so you end up writing down much more complicated models. And then because your models are complicated, you know, you end up doing a lot more complicated estimation. So to give you an example, you think about wage regression. A model, a model of the world is that wages are linearly related to years of experience and years of education, et cetera, et cetera. That's a model. It's a statement about how I think the world works. There's a linear relationship between these things and these things. It's just a really simple model, right? Then there are complicated models like, uh, I think that the way the consumer search is this entire path trajectory thing, right? And when I move from uh, simple to complicated models, the, the techniques get a lot more complicated. What does this mean? It means that the only people who ever do this stuff are people who have PhDs in economics, pretty much, because you end up having to go through a couple of years of graduate I.O., which is, you know, generally at most colleges, one of the one of the hardest possible sequences in grad school. Um, you uh, subjectively, you get a lot of the smartest kids in that in that in that subfield um, because you have to know so many things. You have to be able to understand econometrics. You have to be able to understand game theory. So you have to be good at theory. You have to be good at metrics. You have to be interested in doing applied stuff. You'll be able to put them all together. And you have to get used to the idea that it's going to take you, I mean, papers often get published in five, six years. So you're going to get used to the idea that you will be working on these things for a long time, which is, you know, even super smart people might go, that's just not my preferred time trajectory. I'd like to be done with things in two, three years, you know, so. Yeah, because I was reading some of your papers uh, with Harsh and, and I noticed that I, I would have to say that I think even, first year PhD students would, would struggle to understand some of the concepts in your paper because, so I'm currently taking the first year PhD econometrics class uh, with Professor Chris Sims, oh, yeah. uh, who, who is a Bayesian and he won the Nobel prize a while ago. And he, yep. uh, most of his problem sets and concepts that he teaches us are lots of Bayesian stuff, a lot of simulations, mm-hmm. um, which is very, very different from undergrad level kind of regressions, thinking about that. I mean, he, he lets us run simulations and, and program in like, uh, Julia or Python or things like that. So nice. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to get a sense from you. It's like, how, do you, how does simulation work? We keep hearing this word. I mean, uh, updating beliefs, generating, uh, generating draws uh, from some kind of distribution and, and then you arrive at some results. So I, I, I hear, I watch some of your lectures and you mentioned uh, these phrases a lot. And I think uh, to our average listeners or, or even undergraduate student, how would you explain these concepts to them? Uh, or even to graduate students. So, well, say, you know, it's a good question. I, I, I'm trying to think about how to pass it. I think I would say that there are already two kinds of simulations that we run. So one kind of simulation um, is a way of sort of elucidating what's going on in the theory model. So, you know, and theorists will do this. So theorists will write down a model of the world, um, very smart people, but before they'll go and prove some result about the world, they'll just go and check if it holds in a set of examples. So you might make up an example and you might have, for example, I'm trying to think of a good, I can't think of a good theorem off the top of my head. I'm not, I'm not that inventive, but, but you know, you've got some, you've got some theorem that you're trying to prove. 
And it says something about consumers. It says, for example, that uh, the distribution of purchases made by consumers is going to follow a normal distribution. Or, the, or in a macro model, maybe the distribution of consumption is going to follow a normal distribution. OK, that's a claim. You're going to try to prove a theorem about that. Um, maybe you're going to check if consumers are obeying all the rules of your system that you've just established. And you, you know, they're making their purchase decisions optimally, their consumption decisions optimally, given their income or whatever. Uh, you could just run people through this little process and ask, at the end of the day, does the distribution of consumption look like it's normal? If it does, you might carry on and try to prove a theorem about it. If it doesn't, you go, oh, I see, I'm wrong about this. Uh, I will not try to prove that theorem. I will think about what's going wrong in my model and maybe change the model or maybe change the theorem statement or whatever, right? So that's, that's like one class of checking kind of. The other kind of checking is an econometrics checking. Um, and this is where we run Monte Carlo simulations. All uh, right, and uh, Monte Carlo's as people often call them. And that second kind of checking says, look, I have a, um, a statistical technique that says, given data, uh, I'm gonna correctly recover the truth about the world. So how does this work? There's truth, which generates through some model a data set. Consumers behave according to the following rules, truth. If they do that, there will be data. That data, by the way, is going to always be noisy. In all econometrics models, there's some things that you don't see about the consumers. You know, they like things or they have more income than you thought they had or something. So there's some noise in your data set that doesn't make it obvious what the truth is. But you apply your clever statistical procedure that's going to try and average out the noise and tell me back truth again. So you go truth, data, truth. Now, the trick is, does if you start with truth, you get back truth in this little process. That's the Monte Carlo. Um, and you want to do that lots of times in lots of different ways and check that you, generally speaking, get back truth. Now, there's always noise. So you're not going to get back exactly the truth, but on average, it should be right. Um, and that's what that does. Again, a nice kind of checking. I propose some estimation procedure or some very clever machine learning or whatever I want. Uh, do I get back the truth? If you don't, bad estimator. Don't use it. If you do, okay, maybe you can prove a theorem. I, I see, but okay, I guess this is really getting into the interesting, slightly theoretical territories. Uh, Harsh is going to hate me for asking some, some more econ questions per se, but- Oh, you're uh, good, Tiger, the, go for it. <laughs> the, the, this idea of truth versus data, I, I think it's, it's centered at a lot of the econometrics debate between like Bayesians and frequentists and, and also uh, yeah, so I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Like, are, are we able to uh, uncover truth? Uh, is there an objective truth that exists in, in, in the data set? I mean, th these are questions that, that people well, talk about. Well, now we're into like full-on philosophy, right? Like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> truth, I am, uh, probably, but maybe, I don't know. Um, that's pretty hard. Uh, but I mean, you are pointing to a really big thing, this classical versus frequent, uh, so classical slash frequentist versus Bayesian debate, right? And so, you know, it, uh, you know, a Bayesian kind of approach to the world says, I have some beliefs, you give me data, and I come back with new beliefs. And I think that's how pretty much everybody actually behaves in practice. We're all sitting around here, we all have our own priors or our own life experiences, which lead us to think of the world in a particular way. We get some data and we update, um, but, you know, for most intents and purposes, if you're trying to study how people behave, that's kind of how they behave. Um, but in econometrics, we've actually gone a slightly different direction, which has an equally long and beautiful academic history, um, which says, no, 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 it's better to think about the world as having a truth that I'm trying to uncover. There is, There are some parameters. So 
the easiest case is, you know, you think about line fitting, right? There is some slope to this line in reality. And this maybe comes from like physics. I mean, in physics, there is a truth, right? There is some, you know, there's some co constants and some coefficients that relate different things, right? Um, the, gravity has a particular, a particular mathematical form to it, right? And I just want to know what that is. So now I'm trying to figure out, you know, if I if there is an objective truth, which in some cases of physical systems there often is, how do I get it back, right? I mean, these things are not incompatible. So you might start off as a Bayesian and run experiments. And if I run experiments for long enough about gravity, I will probably coincide with the frequentists who are trying to figure out what the truth is. In fact, I will agree that eventually that my posterior beliefs are a point mass at the truth, right? Um, but but there's a slight difference along, you know, along all paths that, you know, that might take a long time in some cases. And in the case of economic systems, of course, it might take a very long time because there is no truth or the truth keeps changing or whatever. So I, I wanna go, uh, you know, spend more time on this uh, point about methods and how you, how you sort of look for the truth and uncover the truth. And um, you sort of have this vision that, uh, that machine learning models and uh, can like you know deep learning models and neural nets can replace traditional statistical uh, models to sort of uncover this truth? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, it's sort of a, a pet topic of mine. So um, you know, I think that I think that machine learning is just another kind of statistics, um, but it's one that pays a lot of attention to computational aspects. So in um, in line fitting. So if I want to fit a line to a set of points, that's a statistical technique. It's typically called ordinary least squares, OLS. And it has an analytic closed form. So when I want to know what that slope is, I can solve for it and that's very quick because it involves a bunch of inversion of matrices. Turns out that's not that hard to do, although I have colleagues who've tried to figure out how to do it faster. And if you could figure out how to invert matrices faster, that would be a big deal for many companies, including Microsoft. Just random aside, like these very like, Small like mathematical things actually matter quite a lot because there are a lot of computers doing a lot of matrix conversion a lot, right? Um, but anyway, okay, so that's a that's a thing. Um, so then statisticians continued forward in the literature and eventually said, well, you know, we want more complicated and more flexible models, and they started thinking about how you could fit those and how you could learn about inference on those. So how confident you are given a set of data set, particular data set that the thing you're returning is the truth. Machine learning. Um, the, one of the things that's true in econometrics, and maybe a little bit less on so statistics, but very much true in econometrics, is that what we say is like you write down a model, you write down a criterion function, which is a thing that tells you about the quality of the fit of your data to that model at a particular set of parameters. And then we go ahead and we optimize this. We try and find the set of parameters which maximizes this criterion function or minimizes it. Okay. Um, and economics goes like this. Econometrics typically goes like this. It goes model, criterion function, and some proof that if you had infinite amounts of data, this thing would eventually work. And in the limit, it would behave pretty, pretty well. So what I mean by those things, formally, that the parameter estimates you're getting out of your data, if you had infinite data, would actually eventually hit the truth. So they would be right with lots of data. And that uh, they would be asymptotically normally distributed, which is to say they'd be kind of bell-shaped around the truth with finite data, okay? Um, but what they don't do is say anything about optimization. So they don't ever say how you maximize this criterion function. Why machine learning has worked so well is that it's an algorithm. So it says, 
give me data, follow these steps, I will give you a parameter estimate. And I'm not going to pretend that there's some black box optimizer that's going to do it. In fact, the algorithm will tell you how the optimization works. And moreover, um, this algorithm is going to often be designed to scale computationally well with large data sets. So it's going to be a, a, an algorithm that returns, optim, you know, returns Optima and does so quickly. Um, which is to say it's an end-to-end -end solution in the language of like a technology stack, right? You've got this problem that has a lot of steps. In econometrics, we don't go the last mile, which is optimization. We just say, well, yeah, you figure out how to optimize this. That's like an applied math problem. Whereas the computer scientists go all the way through. Um, and they've just developed some techniques like neural nets, like random forests, which are very good at doing these things. They have some theoretical guarantees, which people are working on the stats literature. And um, sometimes they don't. And so you have to be careful not to misuse them. Um, but they work very well in practice. And so one of the misconceptions in, uh, from a lot of economists is that I don't need to know this stuff because, um, because we just don't, because we don't have enough guarantees about it. So we're not really sure how this new thing works. Well, it's just not relevant to my life. That's like great that people out there can use it for prediction or forecasting, but for the kinds of causal or complicated structural analysis I want to do, this isn't a relevant thing. And the answer to that is just like, no, it's like, you know, the, uh, if it doesn't matter what your problem is, if you can state it as a statistical problem, then any number of statistical techniques are applicable to it, including those of machine learning. And actually some of the best statistical techniques we have right now are machine learning, so you should be using them. Professor Lewis, I think you really identified the, the crux of the debate here, because I mean, I still remember taking the undergrad level econometrics course, uh, like last year or, or a year ago. And then my professor mentioned at the very end, the sort of last lecture wrapping up and was saying, why aren't we talking about machine learning in econometrics? Why are they kind of separate fields? It's because a lot of times machine learning is seen as doing predictions. It's kind of like a black box. Whereas economics is a social science. You need to identify causal effects. Our wages uh, caused by more years of education and so on. So whereas you sort of frame this thing as, uh, if we're thinking of this as, as a model for the world and, and there are a set of statistics and, and, and parameters that we're trying to use to, to help us uncover some truth, then it's a statistical problem that we should be able to use machine learning techniques to solve. And it's about solving the problem rather than understanding the causality or, or something per se. Or, or, or... Right. So, I mean, I think that the thing that, you know, the thing that I would say about this is, um, you know, when you're thinking about, say, a causal relationship, so say the relationship between sort of um, education and wages, for example, right? That's a causal relationship you might be interested in understanding. And so what you probably learn in undergrad econometrics is you can run a linear regression of these two, but you're not going to get the causal relationship between uh, years of education and wages because there are omitted characteristics like the person's yeah. ability level. They're very smart, therefore they take years of more years of education. Yeah. They also get a higher income for the same reason you're not getting the causal effect, right? Correlation doesn't mean ca ca causality. Perfect. That's the catchphrase. Correlation doesn't mean causation. Right. So what is this? What is, how does this relate to machine learning? Well, okay. So often, and many, many data scientists and good tech companies will do this and they'll make this mistake. They'll just run a regression of wages on education and they'll say, and they'll use machine learning. They'll say, use a random forest. And they'll say, look, I have discovered that this is the effect. And any good economist will say, that's not the causal effect. That's not right. Okay. What would an economist say about fixing this? What you learn in undergrad is the technique of instrumental variables. Suppose I can find 
some instrument which is going to uh, affect years of education, but is not going to uh, not going to influence wages except through its effect on years of education. Um, I'm trying to think what are the classic sort of well, a, a yeah. date of birth or something, right? Date of birth, that, right? That, date of birth and some like yeah, there's a classic paper, right? Oh yeah, so it's date of birth. So I get I get that as an instrument. Great. So now I've got an instrument, and now you say good. So now I run two CSD squares. I'm Josh Angris. This is the right thing to do. I run two CSD squares. I get results. Okay, great. Now you say okay, could I do this with a different approach that uses machine learning? And the answer is yes, because it's just statistics. But you do want to use the instrument because you've decided that the valid way, your model of the world is that in, in, in computer science terms, your model of the world is that you have unobserved confounders. You do want a causal effect. And therefore, you can't do OLS. You have to do something that uses an instrument. Okay, so how could you do this? Well, I have a paper with, um, with uh, a past intern of mine, uh, Kevin Chen, who's at Harvard, um, which says, yeah, you can do, you can do two cent squares using machine learning. Um, where in the first stage of this two-stage G-squares thing, you do any, any machine learning procedure you like. So you do your best job at predicting years of education from date of birth, as well as the other instruments that are valid, right? You put that completely flexibly. And then like in two-stage G-squares, you often will regress um, the outcome variable on the fitted value instead of on the original value. And you can do the same thing here. Now that, that technically is wrong. So that's intuitive, but not quite right. And you have to do this slight GMM correction, which is a little bit more complicated, but, uh, but it's not complicated. And it's like, it's like, you know, like 10 lines of Python code. It's not, it's not, it's not difficult. Um, and I'm saying this mostly to say, there are issues that arise when you use machine learning and you do have to think about it. Um, but it's a statistical thinking and it applies just as well to the problems. And it's just a question of being careful about some of these details in the same way that you know, even even with two stage least squares, you have to be careful about some of the details, right? So, what would be some of the limits when it comes to to using ML to to do statistical inference or causal inference? Um, so the big word is the big word that I think is difficult here is inference. So, um, you know, if I if I'm trying to forecast, um, let's see a good example like. If I was trying to predict the next word in a sentence, like an autocomplete sort of thing, I might very well use a um, a deep neural net to do that, right? More current neural net, right? And um, and I might be able to do very well at that. And if my phone is actually really good at this, so it autocompletes correctly most of the time, maybe everybody at the tech company is going to be very happy. And nobody really cares how likely it is that I'm going to get it wrong. Like you know, maybe you know, maybe I make terrible suggestions some of the times, but nobody cares about inference on that, right? Um, However, when I want to do a causal effect, I'm thinking about you know, changing a policy to raise the minimum wage, give a policy question, right? Uh, I really care a lot about how confident we are that this is going to be either good or bad for, for wages for unemployment, right? These are all like good, good kind of things to worry about. Um, and so I'd like a confidence interval. The one thing that is sad about many machine learning methods is that it's hard to establish valid confidence intervals uh, for reasonably tricky statistical regions. Um, so there are different approaches to doing it and some of them have better guarantees than others, but it's, it's unlike classical statistics where we have a very clear and well-established body of literature that says, do this, this is the right confidence interval. Um, we don't have that for a lot of machine learning methods. 
And so it's not so much that the world is not causal that makes it hard to apply machine learning and econometrics. It's more that as an econometrician, I often want to get the right standard errors. And that's a lot harder to do. Um, but you can. Uh, I mean, we have a package. We have this EconML out of the Alice group. Uh, and we have smart people who thought about coverage. And you know, most of our statistical procedures get pretty good coverage. Right, so the, the standard errors are about right. Um, but you know, theoretically, it's tough. And it's tough for you know, reasons. I mean, we can get into it if you want to, but the reasons get, we will definitely go down an academic rabbit hole if you want to talk about the no, reasons. It's, it's, hard to get, it's, hard to get a, it's hard to get correct standard errors. No, 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 to totally fine. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even understand some of the basics of standard errors and stuff. So yeah, all, all, all good. Um, but, but perhaps there's one paper that we can highlight. Uh, which is uh, the, the deep IV paper. Uh, it's called, IV stands for instrumental variable, as, as we just talked about, a very common uh, econometric method. So uh, would you mind giving us a broad overview of that? Because th there are concepts like neural nets that I am not too familiar with, which is more harsh uh, domain. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I'd be happy to. So I think this is a, sort of a proof of concept. So um, there are a number of very, very you know senior econometricians uh, Tashino Zugov, Whitney Newey, Susan Athey, Hido Imbens, is sort of a very partial list, who have been writing papers at the intersection of econometrics and machine learning, where they've been saying, nope, you can use this. Here's how you use it, right? And they've, you know, they've gone into it. And they've provided caveats as well. They've said, I would do this, but I wouldn't do this. I think this is smarter. I think this is valid. I wouldn't, right? So they've been careful about how they've entered this literature. Um, and I got really interested in one of my, one of my mentors is Susan Athey um, at Stanford. And so when I saw her writing these papers, I thought, well, I'm sitting at Microsoft too. Maybe I could write some papers in this area. And, um, and, and we happen to have uh, you know, a, a, a fantastic econometrician, uh, Matt Taddy. He's a statistician, I'd say, actually, is a better description from him, uh, from Booth, who was a researcher at the same time that I was at Microsoft. We had a really cool uh, student, Jason Hartford, who was a computer scientist. And, uh, and then we had his advisor, Kevin Layton Brown, who was visiting as well. And so we had a really nice crew of people from a different set of of areas, and I sort of think thought, well, we must be able to do neural nets plus instrumental variables because, like I said, I had this belief that there's nothing that really makes this thing. You know, if you could if you could solve the causal problem, in principle, you could solve it with machine learning. So if you've got an IV, you're fine. Just use machine learning. So that's the background. I thought this must be doable, and then it was just a question of trying to figure out how it's doable. Um, and so we really approached this from kind of an interesting. Um, perspective, which is what we wanted to do was say, if I have an instrument, is it possible to change, um, is it possible to basically fit an arbitrary machine learning model, which could be a neural net um, that connects the outcome variable to the instruments and then do some post-processing afterwards to figure out what's the relationship between the treatment variable and the instrument. Uh, an outcome. And so now I'm realizing that I really have to describe a few things because otherwise this is going to go badly. So let me start with these big picture objects. There's the outcome. In our case, it would be, say, uh, wages. There's the, uh, there's the treatment variable. We often call this in econometrics, um, which is the thing that you're thinking about changing, like you're changing on education policy. What's the effect of education on that outcome? And then there's an instrument, which in this case is, say, quarter of birth, right? Um, or we have other applications of the paper that relate to Bing ads. But anyway, so you, you have this chain of variables. Um, 
And so one thing you can do for sure is you can, you can relate the instrument to the outcome. So you can say, do, uh, do wages vary with quarter of birth? Controlling for some other stuff. Uh, if you're right, the quarter of birth is a valid instrument, then they should, because quarter of birth affects education, which affects wages. Unless the treatment effect is zero, you should see really, you know, differences. Okay. But you want to interpret them afterwards. You want to be able to say, well, those things are attributable to education differences. So you also need to know what the relationship between uh, wages and education is, right? And so what we said is, well, those are both problems that can be solved by neural nets. So one of those problems is finding the relationship between, um, between the instrument and the outcome variable. And that you can do in some very flexible way you like. And the other thing you could do is, in a very flexible way, is find the relationship between uh, education and quarter of birth. Imagining that you're controlling for many other variables at the same time, like income and household composition and demographics, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And so you could use a neural net for that too. Um, that sort of sounds like it would work, uh, that you would be able to use those two models to kind of, in a two-stage d-squares kind of way, to interpret, figure out what the causal effect is. But it turns out if you're going to make everything nonlinear, things get more complicated. And one thing you need that's a little bit more sophisticated is you actually need to know the distribution of the treatment given the instrument. Um, so if the treatment were binary, turn some policy on or off, it's just like saying as the, as the, uh, as the um, instrument varies, what's the fraction of times I give you the treatment versus I don't. But in the case where the treatment could take any continuous value, that's a pretty complicated problem. And so a lot of this paper is really at a high level saying, oh, this thing is solvable. And then at a low level going into, okay, but what do we actually have to do? And so one, one thing you have to do, for example, is you have to fit this first stage called um, using an approach called um, mixtures of experts. So I, I can go into that for a second, if that seems interesting. Uh, sure, yeah. Okay. okay, so let me, so the idea is you wanna know the distribution of some treatment variable, uh, say years of education, as a function of the instrument and other controls. One very flexible way to model a distribution of things is as a mixture of normal distributions. So, you know, one normal distribution often is pretty good, but if you have lots of, you know, weird data, then you can put one there, you put one there, you can put one there. Now you've got three normal distributions and that kind of gives you what you need to know. And you need to know sort of where they're centered, what their variance is and how, how much weight each of them has. Okay, that summarize the distribution. So, uh, one of the, that was an insight that came from, from inter, uh, our intern, Jason. He was like, well, it sounds like what you really want to know at a high level is this distribution. We have this technique from computer science called mixtures of experts that uses a neural net to learn this. And it's really good at it. You know, one of the things he did is um, we had a distribution that was in two dimensions that looked like Clippy, the, uh, the Microsoft art from well, a long time ago. There was this really irritating assistant you used to pop up on your screen sometimes when you wanted something. I think one of you remembers this. Harsh knows this. Harsh knows this. It looked like a pin that you used to like clip together paper and stuff. Yeah. And it had like, oh, like, actual huge nice. eyes. And just, it makes suggestions to you. Yeah. It's a really weird distribution. If you're trying to like figure out an, a two-dimensional distribution that has that shape, it's just super complicated. It turns out you can approximate that extremely well with a mixture of normals. And you can learn it with only like 2,500 data points pretty well. Wow. So that was like a proof of concept that blew me away. I knew very little about Tiger. I knew nothing about neural nets either. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was like, how does this work? I don't know. I, I hear that's a, a good approximation device. Uh, and then he was, like, he was like, look, Clippy. And I was like, wow, this is a very good approximation device. Right? Um, 
And so, you know, that's sort of that's sort of how this project went was a lot of like, okay, we know how to do this in principle, but then there are a lot of details. And so most of the paper is is trying to take a strong stance on certain kinds of details. This is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do, this is the model I would fit for the neural net, this is not the model I'd fit. Um, I would, for example, so in two stages of squares, you have a first stage and then you have a second stage. You do the one thing, then you do the other thing. A lot of times in machine learning, you'll do two things at once. You'll say, well, I'm trying to learn this distribution and I'm trying to learn this other set of parameters. Why don't we um, take gradient steps, again, going for optimization a little bit, which is important. Why don't I take gradient steps in one problem, then the other problem, then the one problem, then the other problem, then the one problem, then the other problem. What we figured out for our problem is that actually we don't want this optimizer of the second stage to be wandering around trying to figure out where to take gradient steps until the first thing is converged. So it kind of knows what problem it's solving. So we solved the entire problem, first stage problem once in its entirety, and then we let it wander around. And that's what economists have been doing forever. We always do first stage, second stage. But in this particular optimization problem with like harder things you know, going on, it wasn't obvious that that was true. You know, we sort of, we gave principled reasons why we thought, yeah, no, you still want to do the economist thing. You want to let this whole thing run to convergence once, and you want to take another step and let that run to convergence. Um, I have a different paper where we don't do that, where we do, where we do the alternating step thing. Uh, so there are these issues that kind of are not so obvious to resolve. So uh, talking about these issues about neural nets versus, you know, traditional statistical um, machine learning models, um, the, the thing that the trouble most people have with neural nets is that like, you know, interpretability, right? Like you can't really know what's going on inside this black box. You just give it a loss function, you give it some data and you know, by magic, everything works out. Um, and so has that sort of impacted your research because you're sort of trying to understand causality? Um, Very much so. So I think I don't have a good answer to this yet. So I've kind of like decided to straddle the fence on it a little bit. So for example, this paper I mentioned earlier with uh, Kevin and Daniel Chen, um, Kevin Chen and Daniel Chen, um, is, uh, that they, um, is that what we do in that paper is we, um, we say, look, we're gonna run a, a very flexible machine learning model in the first stage, but we're gonna run the standard kind of linear regression in the second stage. Why would you do that? Because it's very interpretable. I get a causal effect uh, on say wages and, I benefited from the flexibility, but I still have something very interpretable. And we, we do the same thing actually for uh, judicial decision-making in that paper. It's very complicated to understand how judge assignment relates to the decisions they make, relates to subsequent uh, sentences, uh, but we can, we can figure that out using a machine learning model. In that paper, we showed the machine learning model does a lot better, but it's super interpretable. And so we called that paper mostly harmless machine learning after the Josh Angris book on mostly harmless econometrics, or Josh and somebody else, right? And so the, uh, the, um, the idea is that you can't really get this too wrong. It's like, it's gonna give you something that's interpretable, sensible. And if you do the right, if you do what we suggest, you're not gonna go very far wrong. In other papers, I said, no, no, let's, let's go full machine learning here. Let's go neural net, neural nets, right? And then you need interpretation ex post because the neural net is not very interpretable. So now you need, you need tools like uh, SHAP, which people have developed, for example. There are these approaches that allow you to interpret your neural net results afterwards in various ways. Um, and so that's the other direction to go is fit, it, fit the most general model you like, fit the model that you think describes the world as flexibly as you can. And then let's add some other tools afterwards that make, help you make sense of this. 
Um, and we find in our work with EconML that that's important. If you're going to allow flexible models, you have to allow tools that allow people to make sense of what they found. Uh, Professor Lewis, just I guess another concrete example uh, that, that you used uh, in the paper uh, is uh, this airline example. You said, like airlines gradually increase prices because planes fill more around holidays. And if you have like a very naive machine learning model that would suggest increasing prices uh, any other time of the year would kind of have the same effect or, or so on. And, but, but you're saying that it, there, there are better ways that we can predict pricing maybe around like busy conferences or other factors you can consider. And then it's sort of a more powerful algorithm uh, for this kind of instrumental variable analysis. And, and it would allow you to eventually make counterfactual claims and perform causal inference. So I, I think there are kind of multiple steps, jumps here that in, in the way I explained this thing. So it seems I was describing airlines, suddenly I explained like a breakthrough. So I, I guess, would you mind connecting some of the dots for us? Like uh, counterfactual, you know, inference in that, in that context? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the way to think about IV in particular is that, um, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a good instrument, um, and it depends a little bit on the quality of your instrument. You can learn a lot about the world, about causally about the world, right? Um, and the challenge is to extract as much information from your instrument as possible, because that's really your source of an experiment, right? So in the quarter of birth is the experiment that's using you, it, it, that, that is changing people's education decisions effectively at random, which is allowing you to learn something about the world. And the, then there two kinds of separate things I would think about here. One is what's the mapping from the instrument to the treatment variable? And I'd like to make that mapping as flexible as I can, because in some sense, I don't ever care about interpreting it. I don't need to know exactly why quarter of birth causes education, although maybe that would be a nice thing to do. I just need to know that it is a valid experiment. If you're telling me it's a valid experiment, I wanna really lean on it and squeeze all the information out of it that I can. Okay, so that's like so that's one thing. That's sort of why we think using machine learning in that step makes sense. Then there's a second step, which is the relationship between education and wages. And in two state to squares, you'll assume that's linear, right? Typically. Um, and that's a good parametric form, it's simple. But you might think that it's nonlinear, right? We do advertising um, and ad exposures you think are highly nonlinear. It's very effective seeing the ad once, it's less effective at seeing it twice, they're definitely diminishing returns. And so it's probably gonna have a curve the tails off, right, for example. And you'd if you had a ton of data, you'd really like to be very, very flexible and let, that, let the data tell you what that relationship is rather than specifying in advance that it's a line, right? And so that's the, that's the appeal of machine learning in the second step. So the appeal of machine learning in the first step is to squeeze all the power out of your instruments. The appeal of machine learning in your second step is to be very, very flexible. Um, and, and that second part, you know, really has to scale with your data. If you've got a very few data points, um, then it's hard to really move beyond being linear if you've got like 200 data points. If you have 200,000 data points, then may maybe you can say much more nuanced things. Maybe you can say that, that, you know, the people that respond to education are primarily people from low-income households, uh, but additional education doesn't do very much for people from high-income households. The data might be able to tell you that. It might be able to tell you that in an automatic way using machine learning without you as a researcher trying to have to figure out all these different hypotheses and test them one by one. So it seems like the sort of black boxy nature of neural nets is sort of helping you, right? Instead of, you know, designing a kernel 
for uh, you know, sort of vector machines and stuff like exactly telling the sort of machine learning model like hey i want you to plot like an exponential data or like a gaussian fit you're like sort of just letting the, the data sort of speak for itself so to speak yeah so this is, this is also the land of non-parametric statistics right it says i'm not going to be parametric i'm gonna i'm gonna let i'm gonna let the data tell me and non-parametric statistics as i say um we know a lot about i mean the beautiful papers are written on this for for decades in econometrics but they haven't really been applied that much. I think a lot of that is about optimization. It's about how do you optimize this thing, especially in high dimensions. So in, um, again, sort of technical for a brief second, in lower dimensions, you can do things where you can fit like very nice little kernels and you can smooth data. You can get very beautiful smooths. But in high dimensions, that's hard. And so you really need a tool that does this well. Neural nets do this well, random forests do this well. A lot of the things that have been proposed prior to that just don't do it very well. And so the people didn't use them. Um, and so, yeah, it's really the appeal of being able to let your data speak rather than having to pre-specify what you think is going to happen and then go look for it in the data. I was just going to say, oh my God, Harsh, you were just dropping buzzwords left and right. He, he, he was like Kernel, Gaussian. Like <laughs> Super Vector Machine. I'm like, okay, Super Mario Kart? Well, like, yeah. what are we doing here? Anyways, uh, Professor Lewis, I guess one other curious thing kind of on my mind is, um, this idea of data, right? We're talking about like big data all the time. Like people often associate machine learning uh, and big data together. It seems that you need a lot of data points to to uh, to learn. Uh, how how does that aspect play into your research? And also, how does Microsoft kind of support that? Because I imagine, under the surveillance capitalism regime, uh, Microsoft has so much data. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Good. So. A couple of things. So one is to say, I used to think that was true because that's typically what we think is you need a lot of data to train very fancy models. And it's actually a little bit more subtle than that. If you do the machine learning right, um, you, you do need a lot of data to find very complex patterns in the data. If, you, you know, if, if you're trying to look for something very complicated with like a very few data points, you're probably going to find something that's not actually there. Like it's like looking at 100 data points and like it's like a Rorschach test and you're like, find me a flamingo and you're like, okay, I guess I can sort of see a flamingo there, right? Um, you know, so that, that's not a, you know, that, that doesn't work great, but good machine learning models will look at the ink blot and say, I can't tell you there's a flamingo. In fact, the only thing I can do is really tell you that there's a line. That's, that's all I got for you here. It's a line, you give me a hundred thousand points, maybe I'll see a flamingo, but right. So I think, I think it's not necessary, but uh, it certainly helps if you're trying to kind of use the real power of machine learning, which is to find complicated things. Um, okay, so what about what about Microsoft? So Microsoft is a place where, of course, we do have a lot of data. Um, it's like any real company, you know, data sits within product groups. Uh, Microsoft Research is a ways away from many product groups, right? And so we sit here, and there's a product group here, and a product group here, and a product group here. And uh, the product groups are very careful about access to data for privacy reasons, right? So uh, we don't want to misuse our customers' data. Um, and so any kind of proposal that you might want to run by them is going to have to go through some privacy review um, and is going to involve a lot of anonymization. It's going to have to be careful. And we're going to have to be careful about how we do that. Um, for my research, I've actually, uh, I do some research that's sort of Microsoft internal. So that is to say, it's not really going to ever surface as academic research. Um, and that, you know, that in those cases, I touch the data when I'm allowed to, I propose to go through the privacy review and I get to use large data sets and that's great. 
but to be honest, a lot of those problems that I'm solving are um, not really big data problems in some sense. I'm often thinking about economics problems. I'm thinking about Microsoft's customer base and especially its big customer base. And, you know, that may be 50,000 major companies, right? And we're thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we better serve our customers or what kinds of sales incentives are effective? Um, and so that's, that's a different kind of problem. It's still actually very much in the realm of kind of like small data econometrics. Um, and so that's, that's the sort of stuff I mostly do. Professor Lewis, maybe we can pivot a little bit to, to a slightly lighter note, slightly less technical note, which is a comparison between Microsoft research and academia. Uh, so something I'm, I'm personally quite curious about, and you spent many years at Harvard before going to Microsoft research. You were associate professor, assistant professor. Uh, you obviously spent many years getting PhDs and stuff. So, um, I, I mean, personally, I, uh, I, I was very much thinking about whether I should uh, pursue a PhD in economics uh, this past year. And, and Harsh is a soon to be PhD student in physics. And oh. some of our best friends are, are going to get PhDs in, in, in computer science. But it's really interesting from my perspective because a lot of my friends who don't do economics, who, who study co computer science PhDs, their goal is not to become professors. Their goal is to uh, get a PhD, get the skill set, and either do their own startup or then go work for Google Research or Microsoft Research because it seems to them that's a much better research environment. It's more flexibility. You don't have to think about tenure. And then whereas in econ, econ has traditionally been a field much more constrained in that way. You get a PhD in order to go to academia. Like it's like 90% of the Harvard graduates, you know, go into like teach at state schools or something rather than go work for Goldman Sachs or startups. So um, I, I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, on that contrast. And I, I, I imagine um, the, the econ researchers at Microsoft Research is still a much smaller compared to the, the other fields. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a pretty small crew. Um, there are three of us in Microsoft Research New England, and there are a bunch of other economists in other parts of the company. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that, that's um, the right way to say this. Yeah, Microsoft is one of the few companies that's taken the research model that, that the computer science folks have, that you'll see like Google Brain or Google Research, uh, and said, this is a model we want to embrace for economists. We think that this is the right way to use economists within a company, is we're going to let them continue to do their research and think about what they like to think about. Um, and then we're going to try and transfer the insights into product. So really, I think you can think of like there being, um, there probably are more, but let me say for the purpose of this, let's say there are three kinds of basic categories. Is one is academia, and in academia, you're producing two products. You're producing research unconstrained by anything. You can think about whatever you like, um, and uh, teaching. You're teaching the next generation of people to be good scholars, right? So that's those are the things you're producing. In a lab like mine or uh, you know Google Brain or something like that, uh, again, it's research. We want you to be doing state-of-the-art things, uh, but it's product impact. It's produce research, and then at some point, why don't we figure out how to make that research go into products? And so the, the time horizon on that can be pretty long. In fact, it'd be kind of similar to academia in the sense that you might be thinking five, 10 years out, but ultimately the hope is that there'll be an applied impact. Whereas in, in pure academia, in some sense, you can just write something because you think it's interesting and you might think it will never turn into anything. I mean, I, I was just rereading because it felt kind of fun. Bill Gates has a paper on pancake flipping. Um, 
uh, from when he was an undergrad. And his co-author <laughs> at the time was Christos Papadimitro, who's a very, very, very brilliant computer scientist and who was at Harvard at the time. And they wrote this paper together and Bill apparently you know, didn't find it that interesting. He worked on it and then he kind of decided to start a company. Um, and, uh, and, and Christos carried on that's eventually published. But you know, that pancake flipping, how do you do it optimally? Not obviously applied, although often these things are subtle and eventually end up in applied stuff. And then, um, and then the, uh, you know, the third category are, uh, are people where they think that you have a great skill set, but they don't want you to be doing research. What they want you to be doing is actually figuring out how to make this company more effective, more efficient, more productive. And so Amazon has gone this direction, econ. So where do, where do economists go who don't go to academia? They go lots of places, but one big, big, big employer, the biggest employer of economists in the world, I think it's a PhD economist in the world at this point, is Amazon. Yeah, more um, than the Federal Reserve, which, which is so absurd. <laughs> it's, it's wild, right? And it's because they've taken this bet, and actually my advisor is the chief economist there, Pat Byerbury, um, <laughs> has, taken, has taken this bet that you know, academic economists are people with exactly the right skills that we need. And he's obviously been successful in convincing uh, you know, his superiors at Amazon. This is true because they've been effective, right? Um, and so that's now this third career option. And I think it's in part a reflection of his success that we don't see many people in the middle category. It's either go do something like, cons or you know, litigation consulting, which economists often do, or go do something that's very much not research, but real world focused, or go to research on an academic, but not this middle ground of let's do research that will eventually become applied. Um, and so we're in this weird position, you know, where there are not that many of us. So Professor Lewis, will, will you be fired in 10 years if you, if you don't uh, make the next new iPhone for, for Microsoft or something? Uh, <laughs> great question. Uh, no, I think so. Uh, I, I hope. I don't know. I, I, uh, my, my, bosses, my bosses tell me that, uh, and I, I'm an economist, I think about this a bit too. My bosses tell me that, you know, it's sort of suboptimal to start firing people because everybody will get very skittish. Right? Everybody will be like, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. they can fire me. They can, if they can fire me, Frank, they can fire other people too. Right? So, um, yeah, I think it's more likely that they'll just be like, you know what, this was a great experiment. It's very interesting. Uh, but in fact, bad use of resources. We're going to just take all those people and scatter them to product groups. And they will all do you know, more effective work in the, in the third category that I was talking about before. I see. I see. Because, because I think Uber even hires economists these days. Uh, oh, yeah. Uber so, does. So, I, I, so Uber, Amazon, I imagine that these processes are more for how to make Facebook. our... Right, Facebook, I mean, Airbnb, uh, uh, Pinterest. Um, uh, what I mean, what do they do? It sounds company. creepy. Why, why does Amazon need an economist to know what I want to buy? Oh, they what? don't. They need machine learning. What they need is an <laughs> economist to describe how to make more money uh, from this process of you buying things. Um, how wow. to decide, or or how to make you happier. I mean, I'll take the Amazon view too. How to delight the customer. Those are both both valuable perspectives. Wow. <laughs> Uh, Harsh, I, I, we can't hear you for, for some reason. You're not muted, but... Oh. Uh, well, it's fine. We can edit this small hiccup out. Um, can, can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, you think uh, traditional academia research is 
um, sort of never sees, like, doesn't see the light of day as often. Like, a lot of ideas get lost there because you were, like, I, I think you gave this example, like, in the middle of our, our talk that, you know, that uh, a lot of economists and stuff leave it at, like, you know, oh, this should be optimized or this, should, like, you know, like, optimize this function somehow and, like, don't, don't really worry about how it's done, right? And, like, you know, because, because, they probably don't have much time to they have to get to the next paper they sort of can't write all the python code and make it available on like uh github or something but um as opposed to microsoft where like you know you have your alice project and econml which are available to the public and you are incentivized to like uh you know put these these things through the pipeline until they see the light of day yeah i mean i think that a lot of i mean a lot of economists you know let's be honest about a lot of academia a lot of academia a lot of academics are constrained by teaching. In some sense, this is sort of fundamental with what they do. It's, it's probably the most useful thing that they're producing in some sense is, is good education for folks. Um, but it also just doesn't leave a lot of time for them to do research, right? Um, and so I think that's one part of it. I think another thing that's true of academia, um, but would be true of companies as well in different ways, is that what you produce is a function of what you're surrounded by. So if you're sitting at a company you're going to produce a very particular kind of research. You're going to say, oh, I think these questions are interesting. Even if you've got a lot of freedom like I do, you'll, you'll be exposed to certain kinds of things. The same is true in, acad in academia. You're going to go to conferences. You're going to see what other people are interested in. You're going to write a lot of papers on the kinds of things they're interested in. So I think in, in both, both these cases, there's kind of like a path dependence a little bit. Going back to the beginning of our talk, right? It's where you start is when you end up. Um, and I think that, you know, Hopefully, the very best ideas do see the light of day, but you can wait sometimes. I mean, um, I think Meyerson has a beautiful paper in like 1982 about optimal auctions. Um, and I don't think it was appreciated at the time, but it's certainly, you know, you won a Nobel Prize later, so it certainly eventually got appreciated, right? Uh, and so hopefully the best ideas will eventually float to the top, but there's no guarantee that that's true. Um, and it's not, there's no guarantee that, you know, that academics are optimally resourced to write the very best work. Um, so it's a, it's a harsh economy out there. Do you think academia is fundamentally driven by theoretical uh, excitement, theoretical intellectual excitement, rather than real world impact per, per se? In other words, people who go to academia are those who are ultimately excited by theoretical problems or challenges rather than saying, I, I need to see my work save, you know, this amount of lives, because then you can go into policy, you don't need a PhD, you might want to go to Wall Street or, 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 or nonprofit or something. So uh, I don't think Wall Street saves lives, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> probably not, probably not. Yeah, I think there's a, uh, I think there's, yeah, I mean, I think, I, mean, I, think it's, I, I think it's easy to generalize and come up with an answer that's gonna obviously not reflect a lot of people's motivations. But I do think that people who are drawn to academia are often drawn to neat solutions. That is to say, I want to be able to frame a problem and I want to be able, and, and now I'm really, I mean, I'm really skipping a lot of academia, right? I don't think this is true of English professors, right? But at least the sort of technical problems that we're thinking about, um, econ maybe, uh, I'd like to be able to describe a problem and describe a solution to it. Um, or I'd like to be able to describe a true fact about the world. I'd like to be able to say something like, I really think that education reform is going to matter in this way. But so there's a, you know, there's an academic pipeline that looks like problem, technique, solution. And that's true in all kinds of, you know, biology, problem, experiment, solution, right? And there's innovation in the process for getting that, you know, from A to B. But ultimately, 
it often is going to be kind of possible to do this work on a limited without a without a huge scale, right? It's going to be sort of limited in in how many people are required, and it's often going to feel like it's quite solvable. And I think some of the biggest things that we see in the world, you know, I don't know Amazon for example as an entire company, right? It, it is about sort of taking on something that's much, much bigger than that scope, where you couldn't possibly think that you could solve it by yourself. You're not even sure if it's possibly solvable, right? And you're willing to just try and because you think it could be cool and it could impact a lot of people. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of academics are drawn to things that are a little bit smaller in scale um, because they like getting neat solutions. And we, we're all people who excelled at school. We like being right at some level, right? <laughs> Do, do you, have you ever felt that, uh, that your research has been constrained by Microsoft being sort of risk averse to some extent? They manage a lot of people's data and privacy, you know, they're probably extremely careful about things. Maybe they're like a startup would probably- They're very careful about things, but I haven't found it to be a constraint at all for the research I've done. Hmm. Um, I can imagine it being a constraint for people who really need to touch private data, uh, that that could feel limiting. And I mean, there are definitely times when I'm like, oh, that would be a really fun research project, you know, like, why don't we look at all of our personnel data and try to understand, I mean, they're great questions, actually really important social questions. Like we're a huge company, we make a lot of hiring decisions. We're very concerned nowadays about uh, sort of various forms of subjective bias, racial equity, gender equity, right? Microsoft as a company is very concerned about this, but they'd be very, very reluctant to let people investigate that deeply because if it turns out we've done a bad job on this, right? That's not great. In some sense, it's just a box you don't want to open because it may turn out that the answer is not what you like. We may actually have done great in the past, but nobody wants, everybody can anticipate, look forward and go, uh, that's a potentially really bad outcomes here. Let's just not open that box, right? And so, you know, there are constraints like that, but I think you can understand why they exist. You can start asking questions like, uh, what do Princeton students think when they're sleeping at night or something? Psychoanalyze <laughs> some people a little bit. <laughs> Uh, with so the, searching the, questions. With the power of all their search results. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah. I mean, that would be kind of terrifying, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what about like, I mean, what about, you know, think about like um, Facebook trying to recommend people who might need help for, might need access to a suicide hotline. And that's sort of in this very complicated space, which thankfully I don't have to delve into between being creepy and very socially valuable. Of course, we don't want people to feel depressed and alone and helpless and worried about committing suicide. But on the other hand, it is kind of fundamentally creepy if they're trying to figure that out from all your data, right? And so how do you feel about that? I think, I think there are really good challenges, um, which I think that a lot of my colleagues at Microsoft who are the more in the social media space are starting to grapple with. Like, what, what is creepy? What's okay? What's too much? What are the rules that we should be establishing to make things work better? I think they're really interesting policy questions there. I see. Um, I guess, Professor Lewis, as we gradually wrap up, uh, what do you see as the, some of the frontier uh, topics, either in the intersection between machine learning and economics or, or machine learning at large or economics at large? What are some of the new frontiers you're trying to push, urgent challenges you're trying to think about next? Uh, I'm trying to steal some paper topics here. I'm, I'm just... Yeah, it's good. It's good. You should go. Yeah. No, I, I think like, uh, for me, I mean, I, I'm really interested in this machine learning econometrics frontier. I think that uh, trying to understand how to build solutions that are, are just as good a recipe as ordinary least squares, right? I mean, at some level, you want to get the rules of the game so well established that everybody goes, okay, yes, we understand that. And that's, that's in part about writing papers and coming up with frontier techniques, but it's also about simplifying. It's also about consolidating. It's also about educating, 
It's about saying, oh yeah, this is a solution that's robust, that scales well, that, that doesn't give you wrong results very often that everybody can understand so we can start teaching it to people. I think that's, that's sort of one, one big thing. And then the other thing I worry, I think something, some about, and I, I, I have colleagues who think more about, but I just think it's such an important question is the role of AI in society. I think that there are gonna be all these really, really difficult questions around who should have data, how should they use their data, et cetera. Um, Okay, let me give you a third one. Sorry, I just thought of a third one. I was talking about that. Is uh, I'm really interested in this question of uh, recommendations and market power. So we talked about this earlier. How much how much power do tech firms have? Um, but for law purposes, it's really important to have um, simple tests of market power, like things that are not that complicated to figure out, to tell you if you think that a merger of uh, well, going back to the day, a merger of Facebook and Instagram is a terrible idea. Okay. Uh, how much how much power do they have as a result of that? Well, you know there are ways of thinking about that, and there are already some ways of, uh, that exist. But I think that they, to some extent, they don't maybe reflect the full reality of the tools that are at, at the disposal of these tech companies. And the part of it that I think about primarily is, is just this rankings part. It's just sort of trying to understand, you know, if a company really wanted you to buy a thing, how effective could they be at that? Because if they're really effective at it then they should be able to grab a lot of money from whoever produces that thing. If, if OXO can convince me to buy all my kitchen stuff from OXO, or if Amazon convinced me to buy all my kitchen stuff from OXO, then OXO starts to look like an Amazon subsidiary because they make the things, but Amazon does all the sales and marketing for them effectively, right? And, and so now that you know, they're two separate companies, but the bargain they can strike can be extremely favorable to Amazon, right? Um, and so I think that's interesting too. So, so the punchline of this interview is to break up Amazon and, and Facebook. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going for. I mean, you should break up all of our major competitors. <laughs> Anybody who's competing with Microsoft, I think, I think strong antitrust action. Is, it would be funny if that is the sole mission, the, that's the secret mission of Microsoft research is to produce research that could prove how we can break up everybody else. Like that, if, if at the frontier of, of, of econ, computer science and <laughs> ethics research, like Microsoft research has a great uh, group of people. I mean, uh, um, I, have the, I have some of the books here. Um, is, you mentioned the social media side of things. Yeah. Um, uh, Mary Gray, who, who wrote yes. Ghost Work. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can't find, I can't see the book right now. But anyways, the, the yeah, it would be so funny if they're just they're just writing about Amazon's go <laughs> content moderation. Oh my God, these people are evil. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes these things are, are correlated, right? Like it's you know, like yeah. there's, right. The world is the world is a complicated place. There are problems with it, and people propose that uh, things be done about it. But maybe those are you know related. I mean, yeah. In all seriousness, I think that the beautiful thing about Microsoft Research is that it gives people um, a really good platform to spread these very valuable messages, right? There are people who are thinking deeply about society and they have a nice, a nice platform from which to, to share those messages. So uh, when you work at um, Microsoft Research, which in some way we can see as the new frontier of Bell Lab or, or, or maybe kind of a proxy today, uh, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future we're headed? Because you, you, you see all the people around you who are, who are doing these research um, it's probably intellectually fascinating for sure, but do you walk away every day thinking, yeah, we're, we're kind of screwed or, 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 or this is great. I, or... <laughs> I think I'm a, I think I'm a techno optimist. 
Ah, I love that yeah, phrase. I, don't know if that's right phrase <laughs> I think that I think that there's a lot of power in technology to make the world better. And I think that what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how to how not to screw that up to put it blank bluntly, right? Like, you know, it's like you've got all this promise, but you want to do the right thing with the promise you have. And so society needs to step in. Regulation is important. Uh, understanding what the limits to that should be are important. Worrying about the power of tech companies is important, right? These are all things that we should worry about. But I think ultimately we're worrying about this because we've got these incredibly powerful tools now and you want to steer them in the right direction. I think we could steer them in the right direction. That's great. And we didn't talk about this, but I think, you know, I think the things that I'm worried about more that make me more pessimistic are much more around attention, right? And this is an entirely different topic, but, you know, but thinking about how people are enabled to step away from their electronic devices, their ability to be present, their ability to be social, their ability to interact. I worry more about that. And I don't know if, you know, and there you could worry that the tech companies are more of a problem because their incentives are tied very much to keeping you on these devices. And these devices are incredibly powerful and are incredibly useful. And they do give you incredibly powerful tools, which is why you use them. But I uh, sometimes I wonder a little bit whether we're starting to lose um, to lose our ability to be human, at least human as we were. Um, so, no. well, I mean, we're going to end the interview like at this point and then later I'm going to reflect on the, the last sentence you say. It was like, wait, wait, did Professor Lewis just say like, we're not going to be humans anymore? Like what, what did he just reveal at the last minute? This could <laughs> go, just... <laughs> go on to be in a whole nother interview. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. So, so last question, uh, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would your punchline be for, for today? But besides the fact that Microsoft Research is a scheme to, to, to unravel all the competitors, which we've gotten already, but in addition to that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good punchline. Um, maybe, I'll give you a, maybe I'll give you a, maybe I will give you a research punchline, which is uh, that machine learning is a statistical tool and it can be applied in economics and it should be applied in economics. Thank you so much, Professor Lewis, for, for, for joining us. It's just been such a wonderful uh, interview. Yeah. A pleasure. Yeah, really truly a pleasure. And, and Harsh, thanks so much for joining me today. This, yeah, this great. concludes. It's great as always, Tiger. Yeah. Uh, of course. I mean, uh, it was an honor to interview <laughs> Professor Lewis. Yeah. It had such a good conversation, which is really good. Exactly. Well, well, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, you may uh, watch this video on YouTube, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, you can learn more about Microsoft Research uh, at microsoft.com slash en slash us slash research. And, and you can read more about Professor Lewis' uh, work. Simply Google him, uh, Greg Lewis. Uh, so this concludes this episode. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.